We continue this morning with the sermon series accompanying the Sunday school series through the Gospel of Mark. We come now to chapter 14, which is the longest chapter in the Gospel of Mark. Remember, uh, it is recording events of Jesus' last week of His earthly ministry, what we call the Passion Week or Holy Week. So let us attend to the Word of God. For man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that You would feed us with Your Word. For we are weak and poor and struggling And apart from you, we can do nothing. So we pray that you would send forth your word by the power of your spirit. As the rain falls down and waters the earth, bringing both seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so may your word go forth in our midst by the power of your spirit and accomplish that for which you purpose and not return to you void. Grant us the grace to believe the promises of the gospel. In Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The Word of God, it is written. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Him, Jesus, by stealth and kill Him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that for this ointment? could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in, her mem- in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now unto him who loves us, who has washed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all honor, praise, glory, and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We come now to Mark 14, the chapter in which the beginning of the passion narrative is found. The night of the Last Supper, the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas' betrayal. Jesus' arrest, his trial before the Jewish Supreme Court, and Peter's denial. 
It all begins under a very dark shadow with a foreboding of evil in verses one and two. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now that immediately raises the question, why? What was their motive? What moved them with such animosity against Jesus that they came to the conclusion that they had to kill him? Well, one answer is that they feared that Jesus was going to foment a revolution against Rome, a peasant uprising, if you will, which would bring the wrath of Rome upon the Jews and utterly destroy them. In the Gospel of John, chapter 11, uh, we have a, a, a conversation of the chief priests and the Pharisees in which they said, quote, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. So on the face of it, it seems that the Jewish religious leaders' motive was rooted in, from, from their perspective, the protection of the Jewish nation. So it seems from their perspective that they had a kind of moral justification, an end which justified the means for their conspiracy to kill Jesus. We have to, we have to save our people from Rome. Really? Really? Without ever seeking to have a constructive conversation with Jesus? Without ever asking Jesus himself what his intentions were relative to Rome? Despite the fact that there really was no evidence that Jesus was a member of that party of Jews known as the Zealots, who were in fact always plotting and hoping for armed rebellion against Rome. No, if, if the members of the Jewish council really thought that they had moral justification, moral rationalization for killing Jesus, the supposed protection of the Jewish people, they were self-deceived, self blind to their own deeper and truer motives. They were just making that up to make themselves feel good, make themselves feel good while conspiring evil, propping themselves up in their own self-righteousness. Mark tells us later in chapter 15 that Pontius Pilate knew why the leaders had arrested Jesus and turned him in. Mark 15 verse 10 says that Pilate perceived that it was out of envy it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Envy. Resenting someone, hating someone for being something or possessing something which you are not or do not have. It was out of envy that they delivered him up. 
Envy is not the same thing as coveting. When you covet your neighbor's possession, your eye, your desire is on that possession, on that object. Envy is not the same thing as jealousy. When you are jealous, you are fearful that something which you have might be taken away from you. So again, your eye is on the thing itself which you are jealous to protect as your own. But envy, envy is directed at a person. When you are filled with envy, you are filled with resentment, hatred toward that person, his or her very personhood, because he or she, instead of you, is something or has something which you are not or do not have, but you envy that person. Envy, you see, is a matter of resentfully, hatefully feeling your inferiority in comparison to another. The only way to satisfy that envy is to act upon that resentment and hatred toward that person. Chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees looked at Jesus and they saw a man of divine wisdom, a man of divine authority, a man of divine power, a man of divine goodness, a man of divine righteousness, a man of divine holiness. They looked at Jesus and they saw what they were not. He exposed them for what they were. That's the reason that some people today would kill him if they could. Because I don't want him to be God. I want to be God. I want to be the Lord of my life and of everything about it. Now, let's look at Mark 14 and see what it tells us about their conspiracy. They, the chief priests and scribes, were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, verse 2, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. It was the week of Passover. That was the Jewish feast celebrating, commemorating the exodus from Egypt. The Jews had celebrated the exodus for some 13 perhaps 1,400 years. It was the divine act which gave them their national identity and their covenant relationship with Yahweh, the God of Israel. It was the great victory which always gave them hope. 
It was one of the Jewish feasts which all Jewish males were required to attend in Jerusalem. Jewish pilgrims came from all over the known world to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. There were hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem for the Passover and and some estimate as many as a million. And so the chief priests and scribes initially intended to wait until the Passover celebration was over. Not during the feast, so as not to cause a riot themselves. But that's not the way it worked out, is it? No, it's not. Because they weren't in control of the situation, were they? No, they weren't. You see, this wasn't simply about the plans of wicked men, but rather the plan of the sovereign God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It was the week of Passover. The Passover lamb had to be sacrificed during the Passover feast. And Jesus was the true Passover lamb. The Passover feast wasn't the time chosen by the chief priests and scribes to kill Jesus, but it was the time chosen by God for the Lamb of God to be offered up as the once for all substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of His people and of all who would believe in Him throughout the centuries to come unto this very day. Now, what was it in the sovereign plan of God? What was it, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, which caused the chief priests to go out and carry out their plan to kill Jesus during the week of Passover? Well, they got some unexpected help, didn't they? Verse 10 tells us that Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests in order to propose a plan to betray Jesus to them. And they were glad about it. And they offered to give him a reward. So at that point, at Judas' instigation in the week of Passover, the wheels were in motion. The evil plans of wicked men at work under the sovereignty of God who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of His will. Now, let's take a look at this that we see in this passage. We've got this dark shadow of evil in verses 1 and 2, the chief priest's intentions to kill Jesus. And then we have this dark shadow of evil, Judas's portrayal to betray Jesus in verses 10 and 11. But sandwiched in between these two passages we have the account of a woman's love and devotion to Jesus. Do you see that? And Mark is making a point. He does this very deliberately. He's making a point by way of what is called his sandwich technique. Those who should have been the very first to recognize and to receive Jesus as the Messiah of Israel, the religious authorities... We're plotting to kill him. 
And then a man who had been among Jesus' closest companions for three years, who should have been loyal to Jesus, was the very one who proposed a plot to betray Jesus. But in between these two sins of ungodly men, we have this account of this woman's costly love and devotion to Jesus. Her costly love and devotion to Jesus is contrasted with the sinister conspiracy of the chief priests and Judas. It takes place in the village of Bethany, which is about two miles from Jerusalem. It was the hometown of the two sisters, you remember, Mary and Martha, and their brother Lazarus, whom Jesus had at this point raised from the dead. In fact, in the Gospel of John, in the parallel passage, this woman is identified as Mary, the sister of Martha and of Lazarus. And we really don't know who Simon the leper was, but perhaps he was known in the earliest Christian community as a man whom Jesus had healed of leprosy. And as Jesus was reclining at table, dining, a woman, Mary, came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, According to, according to Jewish custom of that day, she really wasn't supposed to interrupt men while they were dining except to serve them. But by the way, Jesus had very little regard. Have you ever noticed this throughout the Gospels? Jesus had very little regard for those kind of social conventions, social customs, especially when they excluded and denigrated women. You ever notice that? Let's just make a note of this. This is kind of a sidebar note, but it's good to note it. It's right here in the text. Jesus, the Son of God, was a man, a Jewish man of the first century in whose company women were very safe. They were safe with him in the most wholesome, pure sense. Women were safe with Jesus, the Son of God. That's good to know, isn't it? Very good to know. Well, the other thing about this socially unacceptable interruption of dinner by this woman, Mary, is that this perfumed ointment, this nard, was worth about 300 denarii, which translates into about a year's worth of wages in that day. A year's worth of wages just poured out all at once, in addition to which, was the value of this alabaster flask, which she broke in order to pour out all the ointment at once. Now, scholars are generally agreed that she probably had not earned the money to purchase this flask with this expensive ointment in it. This was most likely a family heirloom, a priceless treasure. 
out of which just a little bit of ointment would be taken from time to time. But I mean, she broke the thing. She broke it and poured out all the ointment all at once on Jesus. And the other people there, Jesus' disciples, including Judas Iscariot, watched in consternation and disdain as the sweet fragrance filled the room. <laughs> what a waste! What a waste! These women don't know anything about money. When it says they scolded her, the Greek New Testament word conveys the image of a bull snorting with its nostrils flaring. That's, that's the word. They scolded her. They were verbally assaulting her is what they were doing. They were verbally assaulting her. They were indignant with what they thought with what they thought was their righteous anger. If you're just going to pour it all out at once and waste it like that, if you didn't really want it in the first place, it would have been a lot better to have sold it for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. Now that, that's just bad stewardship. That's just bad stewardship. You know, I bet that they thought that Jesus was very pleased with their display of righteous anger for the sake of good stewardship. I bet that they thought that they were really making Jesus proud of them, showing him how seriously they took their responsibility as his disciples to advance the kingdom of God, how keenly aware they were of the needs of the poor and how they could be trusted. Oh, yes, they could be trusted not to waste any of the financial resources that they might have for their ministry. Blah, 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 blah. They didn't get it. How many times had Jesus already told them that he would go to Jerusalem where he would be rejected by the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees and be crucified? How many times, how many times would they have to hear that before they would get it? I don't know. How many times do you and I have to hear that Christ died for us before we get it? Jesus was a man with whom women were safe. And so he told them, Leave her alone. Leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing to me. And then he said, for you always have the poor with you. Whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. Jesus' words here, you will always have the poor with you. Is sometimes quoted, 
cynically as though Jesus were commenting on the futility of helping the poor or maybe even undermining and diminishing the importance of helping the poor. But neither of those interpretations is correct and they totally miss the point. Helping or doing good for the poor is an essential expression of Christian discipleship throughout the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. We are instructed to have special compassion on the poor and Jesus is in no way contradicting or minimizing that. He says right here, whenever you want, you can do good for them. The clear implication is that Jesus' disciples should continually do good for the poor. Now exactly how we do that so that our help is actually helpful, so that our doing good for the poor actually does the poor good? That's a whole nother question, which Jesus is not addressing here. But the point remains. Jesus was, in that moment, telling his disciples continually to care for the poor. But what Jesus is most of all addressing is the significance and the timeliness, the spot-on rightness, in Jesus' own words, the beauty, the beauty of this woman's gift. Jesus received it as a beautiful gift. It wasn't a gift of visual beauty. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful thing in the sense of, of being fitting, being appropriate for the moment, being personally meaningful and God-glorifying. It was an expression of personal love and gratitude and devotion. She wanted to give this gift. <laughs> and she wanted to give it all. In her mind, in her heart, it wasn't a waste it wasn't a waste to pour it all out on Jesus. In her mind, in her heart, this is what this precious, expensive, performed ointment was for. It was for Jesus. And, and it was for her to have a way to show him and to tell him how much he meant to her. In her heart and in her mind, not one drop was wasted. It was a beautiful gift of costly love. It was a beautiful gift of costly love. J.C. Ryle has some fiery comments in his commentary about this incident. Of those who snorted with indignation at the woman, he writes this, quote, The spirit of these narrow-minded fault finders is unhappily too common. There is never lacking a generation of people who decry what they call extremes in religion and are always recommending what they term moderation in the service of Christ. If a man devotes his time, money, and affections to the pursuit of worldly things, 
They do not blame him. If he gives himself up to the service of money, pleasure, politics, they find no fault. But if the same man devotes himself and all he has to Christ, they can scarcely find words to express their sense of his folly. He's a fanatic. Oh, he's just too enthusiastic. He's an extremist. In short, they regard it as a waste. A cold heart makes a slow hand. If a man once understands the sinfulness of sin and the mercy of Christ in dying for him, he will never think anything too good or too costly to give to Christ. Let me repeat that. If a man once understands the sinfulness of sin and the mercy of Christ in dying for him, he will never think anything too good or too costly to give to Christ. He will rather feel, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Oh, he will fear wasting time, talents, money, affections on the things of this world, but he will not be afraid of wasting them on his Savior. And so it was with Mary of Bethany. As Jesus said, she has done what she could. Just like the poor widow in the temple who gave her all when she put in two copper coins, all that she had, she did what she could. And for her, that was a gift of costly love. Mary had an alabaster flask of expensive perfumed ointment, and she did what she could. She gave a beautiful gift of costly love. But why? Because she knew what Jesus, not only what he had already done for her, but what he was going to do for her. You see, don't miss this. Jesus took the opportunity to remind them all of what he had been telling them all along. He would be rejected and killed. He says, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. This passage takes us to the cross and Jesus' death for sinners. You remember that when Jesus was taken down from the cross on that Good Friday afternoon, there was not time enough remaining in the day to anoint his body for burial. And so he accepted this anointing as his anointing for burial. He knew what was going to happen to him because he knew what he 
was going to do. In that light, Mary's gift of costly love can now be seen as simply a very humble response to the gift of costly love which Jesus was about to give her on the cross. This passage isn't about Mary's gift of costly love. It's about Jesus' gift of costly love. When you look at the cross and the gift of costly love given there, His body broken and His blood poured out, There's nothing in this world. There's nothing in this world. Nothing in this world, no matter how costly, which you or I could ever give to equal or to compare to Jesus' gift of costly love. But tears of grief could ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. To God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of infinitely costly love. May we know indeed the sinfulness of sin. May we know indeed the mercy of Jesus Christ in His death for us. Therefore, by Your grace, may we give to Him the costly gift of the fullness of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith as we say together the Philippian Creed based on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2. Christians, in whom do you believe? We believe in Christ Jesus.